0: Open your scriptures to Mark chapter 7. Eventually we'll move to Galatians 5, but we're going to start in Mark 7. I want to begin with a question. How do you know whether someone is spiritual or just religious? Or I could turn it on me. How do I know I am a spiritual, rightly spiritually related to God by his Holy Spirit? Or if I'm merely being religious? Just created this list. Pope Francis is religious. Saeed Ali Hosseini Khamenei is the current supreme leader of Iran and he is very religious. Hindu temple priests are religious. The Taliban are religious. Buddhist monks are religious. David Koresh, cult leader of the Branch Davidians, was religious. Jewish leaders during Jesus' day were religious. And a lot of conservative Americans are religious. And am I really suggesting that good old conservative evangelical Christians might be unsaved in a similar way that a Hindu temple priest is unsaved? And the answer is yes. I'm suggesting that that somehow we could be deceived like those who walked in the days when Jesus taught and ministered and he had to correct them. It's just a lot more difficult to detect because we're comfortable with that form of religion as opposed to other forms of religion. Religious people have a set of beliefs and a code of behavior. That's all I'm talking about when I say religious. How do we know we aren't simply religious in a culturally American, evangelical, fundamental sort of way, but not born again by God's spirit? Romans 8, 16 says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the internal evidence, a subjective evidence that I receive by the Holy Spirit of God. I know that. But can I look around this room and determine through any set of evaluators that you are spiritual and not just religious? How do I know when I've defaulted back to being merely religious rather than truly spiritual? And there have been seasons and episodes in my life, even in full time ministry, where I have defaulted back to being religious rather than spiritually minded and evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. In John 3, 3, Jesus answered a very religious man. You know him. We haven't met him. You've met him on the pages of Scripture. His name is Nicodemus. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless something transformative happens, you don't even get to heaven. Nicodemus was educated, intellectual, influential, very religious, but he was not rightly related to God through the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, Jesus told him in John 3:78, of course, he says, You must be born again. Nicodemus is thinking in earthly physical terms. And Jesus says this, says this to him: Do not marvel, or maybe just look at him looking at this. At this Pharisee who is asking a sincere question. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, listen to this, with everyone who is born of the spirit. Sometimes religious leaders are not spiritual. You know, biblical preaching moves from exegetical commentary, right? We draw out what the Bible says and doctrinal exposition teaching from which the truths of the text are drawn from and it moves to life instruction. So that kind of preaching not only expounds, but it exhorts, right? It moves, it challenges because my calling is not simply a calling to share information. And your responsibility isn't simply to stockpile knowledge about God. It's actually to relate rightly to God. It's a relationship. And ultimately, what God is doing through his spirit is conforming us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Can we see that in one another? Is there tangible evidence? And if so, what is it aside from being merely religious? Because I can almost guarantee you everybody in Jesus' day, except for Jesus, came to this conclusion about Nicodemus. He is extremely religious. 2 Corinthians 3 6 says this Such is the confidence that we have through Christ. Toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul says this, who has made us, the apostles, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, right? The old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, but of the spirit. There it is again. An emphasis on God's spirit for the letter kills right the law alone is rigid and condemning but the spirit gives life so a pastor teacher is not simply a minister of information he is a minister of Christ's transformation and that's what ought to be happening not just on Sundays when we gather But Monday through Saturday, that ought to be happening as we ourselves lean into the means of grace that God has supplied to us. God intends to restore and renew his people by his spirit through the ministry of his word. And that's why the Apostle Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, unlike Moses, unlike Moses and the law, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And my question is, how are we relating to the Spirit of God? There are a few negative responses. I haven't listed all of them, but here's a few. You can resist the Holy Spirit. We see that in the New Testament. You can make him exceedingly sorrowful, right? Ephesians 4, verse 30, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench him. You can actually douse his efforts to bring something to life in you. And you can douse those efforts, 1 Thessalonians five eighteen. But there are also three positive responses to the Holy Spirit. You can listen to him. Matter of fact, for all of the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3, it says this. He who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit is saying to the church. Listen to him. You can be controlled by him. Ephesians 5.18 uses the word filled, but it's not a matter of being filled like water in a glass. It is a matter of being controlled by him. And this morning we're going to focus on this one. You can Obey his promptings. You can walk in the spirit. Galatians 516. I've had you open to Mark chapter seven. And in this chapter, you're going to see there is a it's really fascinating. You have this representative religious group, these elites from Jerusalem, and they travel from Jerusalem to check on this new teacher who's gaining popularity, who doesn't have their endorsement. He's a risk. You know his name. His name is Jesus. They traveled north. Scribes traveled from Jerusalem to Capernaum to join up with the local Pharisees in an effort to stop this young rabbi. He was an anomaly. He was different. And they knew that. He was a risk. People don't like what they don't understand and what they're not in control of. There was a movement of conservatism in the South, institutionalism in the South, and Jesus posed a threat to them. And this was not an easy journey. This isn't like, hey, we're going to travel down to Colorado Springs and we're going to go to this conference and hear this preacher. No, they're traveling north quite a distance to find fault with Jesus. Here's what strikes me about this context. Proud religious people can be in the very presence of the Son of God and under his teaching and yet find fault with him, fault with Christ. They were interested more in ceremony and tradition than they were in finding the Messiah and true spirituality. Well, what did Jesus do? Look at Mark chapter seven, verse six. He confronts them. He said this, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Here is Jesus using scripture as an authority to confront wrong. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, right? External religion, but their heart internal true spirituality is far from me. In vain do they worship me, which means they're they're acting out worship, but it's empty. It's hollow. Teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus says this, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You know, what's interesting is the Pharisees during the intertestamental time period, they were the good guys. They did hold on to right doctrine. They did hold on to the right ways. They did preserve the manner and the living of the Jewish people. But as they come out onto the pages of the New Testament, it's like something changed and they're not the good guys anymore. And they're actually the strongest opponents to Jesus. They're the strongest opponents to truth. Matter of fact, Jesus followers and Jesus himself eventually found themselves outside of the confines of traditional Judaism altogether. And that's exactly what needed to happen. And I was thinking about it this way, that could also need to happen among groups who insist on a particular style of music, a preference, tradition on Sunday, but who are irritable, angry and unpleasant the rest of the week. And I'll ask you, which one is a true reflection of their spiritual heart? Their zeal for a style? Or their attitudes throughout the week. It might need to happen among groups who faithfully attend service on Sunday. A good thing. We could even argue biblical. Tradition, but whose lives are characterized by habitual complaining, gossip and jealousy the other six days of the week. Which one is a true indicator of their spiritual life? Or those who judge people for not wearing the expected dress code or affiliating under their preferred label, tradition, but who slander and sow discord among others. Which one is a true reflection of their heart? And I think we all passed the test. We know which ones reflect the heart. See, here's our problem. We typically focus on the externals of behavior rather than the internal overflow of the heart. And that's backwards because Jesus came and said, unless you're born again by God's spirit. And that starts inside internally. It doesn't start with a checklist, because if you want to compare checklists, the Pharisees have you defeated. That's why Jesus said, look at verse 21 of Mark, chapter seven. perform within, out of the heart of man, internal come evil things. So our relationship with God is a matter of the heart. And if we miss the heart, we can miss those subtle idols that rise up in the heart. I love what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman. Really, I wish we could just like focus in on John four again about worship that is in spirit and in truth. But he tells her true worshipers, true worshipers, true spirituality will worship the father in spirit and in truth. Now, that's a small S up to this point. We've been talking about you know, capitalized for the Holy Spirit, but we actually will worship God not just in truth, though that is a non-negotiable, but in our spirit, our affections, our emotions as well. So, So it's doctrine and emotion. Truth and affection. Right teaching, absolutely. And a right spirit. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Paul issues a few warnings in the book of Galatians. In chapter 1, he issues a warning about the gospel. He says, don't revise it, don't edit it, don't add or subtract to it. Even if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel or even an apostle, don't follow them. That's Galatians 1. He issues a warning about our freedom in Galatians 5. Don't become enslaved to the law again. Look at Galatians 5.13. For you were called... Of course, he's writing to, to the churches in Galatia. Local churches. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word one phrase really you shall love your neighbor as yourself am i have i am i will i serve you this church my church of which i am now just a member i do not hold an office will i continue to serve this church in love Am I offering the warmth of fellowship and openness? Or has my heart become hardened? Because look at 15. Paul, Paul runs there quickly. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so in the midst of these warnings, Paul highlights the keynote of this section with an imperative. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Why walking? Wouldn't it be a lot easier if if we could relate to God spiritually, like through blinking or breathing? I don't have to put any kind of volition or effort into it. I could just breathe. How How many of you who are parents, when your first child was born and you saw this little baby girl or little baby boy and it blinked, you were like, it's blinking. You ever done that? No, but what do you do when she or he takes their first step? I mean, you got the, you got the phone out and you're recording this and you're sharing it. Why? Well, there's a difference between blinking and walking. See, our, our bodily movements can be classified as voluntary and involuntary. We've talked about this before. Like nobody here in 45 minutes since we started this gathering to worship God had to remind the person next to you, to take their next breath. Hey, you're, you're turning purple. Inhale, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you, you came today. No, we don't do that. Why? It's involuntary. It just happens. Walking has to be learned. And so the Apostle Paul purposely chooses a voluntary action in how we relate to God through his spirit. You walk In the spirit, it refers to a way of life, a habit of living, a continuous action. Now he makes an amazing statement connected to that voluntary act of the will as we relate to God through his spirit. Look at verse 16 and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That means the Holy Spirit can enable us to walk in such a deliberate way that there are conspicuous results. Paul makes a similar point about the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Let me just read this to you. Romans eight verses five to six. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Here are the results. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And it's always the death of something. But to set the mind on the Spirit, and I love these two words, is life and peace. It doesn't mean that what you are concerned about is wrong. But there ought to be life and peace as we set our mind on the Spirit. I'm concerned about leaving my children to move overseas. But life and peace isn't attached to that move life and peace is attached to how i am relating to the holy spirit it's the old illustration in this little pamphlet i was handed uh, as a young believer and it's called your reactions are showing i don't know if any of you read that i don't even know if it's if there's even an electronic copy and I believe he was the first one to use that illustration of the tea bag in the hot water. How many of you are familiar with that? Okay, five of us, seven. We have some late comers. Um, the whole picture is the hot water simply reveals what's in the tea bag. Right? The hot water has no aroma, it's got no taste, right? There's no flavor. It simply reveals. The heart. So the circumstances are the hot water. The circumstances are poured in over that tea bag, and the tea bag is our heart. And what comes out is the flavor of what's inside, internally. And if it's Kenyan tea picked fresh on the tea farms of Lemuru, where we used to hike when we were in language school, it will have a beautiful quality taste and aroma, unlike almost any tea you've ever tasted before. But if it's some generic brand that's already been steeped twice, the hot water will expose that. That's what's in the tea bag. We are in a transition as a church. And it's a major transition. The water is hot. And all that's going to do is it's going to reveal what's in our heart. And... And we can show the fruit of the Spirit if we are convinced in our conscience that we are going to vote yes. And we can show the fruit of the Spirit if we are convinced in our conscience that we are going to vote no. But the circumstance that we are in together will reveal where we are at spiritually together. Our actions will either be governed by the flesh or by the Spirit I'm not talking about disagreement as synonymous with divisiveness. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about doing a thorough research. I commend you for for being zealous about doctrinal purity. I am talking about how we live life with one another. Because the world is watching. This contrast is a major theme in the New Testament. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ through spiritual experience, our union with Jesus Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? Because of what is true about us in our union with Christ in future hope. Verse three of Colossians says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears future perspective, then you also will appear with him in glory, regardless of what happens this month or next month or on September 18th, regardless of what happens. Our goal and our full desire is not on that date. It is on future glory because of our union with Jesus Christ. And that determines how we interact with each other right now. Galatians 5, 17. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. All I'm asking us to do right now is this. Identify the true nature of the conflict. The true nature of the conflict is in my heart. It is the flesh and the spirit Waging war with each other. It's not external to me. My greatest problem is not found in another seat or on another side of this building. My greatest problems are never around me. They are in me is what Galatians 517 is saying. And never underestimate the residual power of sin to exert its influence. Since power has been broken, its consequences fully taken by Jesus Christ. But a struggle remains in our hearts, a conflict remains until we see Jesus face to face. There's a conflict of desire. Let me put it in a humorous way with, with this caveat that all illustrations break down at some point. But there is a conflict that's going on. Have you ever wanted to go to a restaurant with your family? Right. And you already know where you want to go. You had a, you had a clear desire for some kind of cuisine, Thai or Indian and as a good parent, you go ahead. You're already driving and you ask the family where they would like to go. Chaos ensues. I know I've ridden with the Shindell family. It's awful. <laughs> Sides are taken. We, we always get that. She always gets to choose where we go, right? We went there the last time. How many, is this like unfamiliar territory for any other families? And, and your desire... Of course, in this case, now the kids are the flesh, right? Your desire is overruled by another desire. And you're stuck eating a burger and fries again. It's just all I'm showing you is there is a conflict of desires, and that's what goes on in your heart. I told you that illustration was going to break down. In Galatians 5, there is an important principle to help us understand true spirituality, and it's this. God's indwelling and abiding spirit in believers not only opposes the impulse to sin, but brings life and peace. There are two lists and I want to I want to just focus on this and then we'll be finished. Here is the structure of Galatians 5 verse 19. The first title to this list, it says the works of the flesh. In verse 22, you have a second list, and it's called the fruit of the spirit. In 19 to 21, you have a list of 15 of the works of the flesh. And then there is a conclusion that says those who do these will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is an eschatological conclusion if these are habitually your lifestyle. With the fruit of the spirit, then in verses 22 to 23, there are nine of those evidences and verse 23, it says this against such things. There is no law. Look at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're clear. They're conspicuous, right? It doesn't demand extraordinary spiritual discernment or a theology degree or a psychology degree. They're evident. They're clear to everybody. Well, what are they? We're not going to read through for sake of time. Three words in verse 19 have to do with sexuality, sexual immor- immorality. Impurity, sensuality. So what's happening is the flesh takes God's good gift and seeks its pleasure outside of divine boundaries. There are two words in verse 20 that have to do with religion. This is not my concern here this morning. Idolatry and sorcery. Two terms that focus on the refusal to worship the one true God and a reminder that the flesh loves religion travel anywhere in the world travel to northern India travel to Nepal travel anywhere Bhutan people love religion but there's going to be an imbalance here because eight words in verses 20 to 21 describe how fleshly desires destroy relationships note the distribution three words for sexual sins Two words for religion, but eight words for relationships. Social sins that disrupt the community of believers. Of those eight, four are attitudes, and four describe the result of those attitudes. Look at the first word. Now, if you're, if you're not looking at the ES, uh, English Standard Version and another version, um, your words will be a little bit different, but you can still track with me. And sometimes when I go to define that word, I'll probably use the word that your translation uses. Enmity, that just means discord or feud, but enmity denotes the growing hatred. There's a growing bitterness and hatred that lies at the root of discord, not disagreement. We can disagree all the time and we can question and we can and we can apply pressure and tension and go back and forth. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about something happening inside of your heart that is a growing hatred Because of discord, it's the person you're talking about in private. Let me just put it that way. Strife is the next word. Contentious disposition. It focuses on on a very real contention that divides people from one another. And again, Paul is not talking about truth. Doctrine does divide. It's intended to. But this is a contentious disposition. It is the spirit of an individual um, that divides people from one another. The next one, jealousy, rivalry or selfish zeal. A zealous passion for one's own ways. Fits of anger, or you could say bursts of rage. Strong passion of the mind with an adversarial attitude. Rivalries. Party spirit. Selfish ambition. Listen to what James says in James three, verse thirteen to sixteen, because these are not isolated instructions. These happen any time a community of believers comes together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in and listen to these two descriptions in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. First Corinthians 14:33, Interesting passage, because from 12 to 14, Paul is focusing on spiritual gifts. In 14, he lands on two particularly tongue speaking and prophecy. But at the end, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He uses the word dissension, which is a standing apart. I'm going to call that unbiblical separation because there is also a biblical separation that we need to maintain. This term highlights the fragmentation that happens in a community as a result of sin. Let's call this clear sin. Divisions, also factions. Thomas Schreiner noted, Here the focus lies on a selfish exclusiveness and party spirit that creates division where there should be none. Envy. The desire to possess what others have, it may not necessarily be things, it might be positions. A.B. Bruce said, It is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. Have you ever felt that? I have. And it eats like a cancer. The final two words have to do with abuse. One involving substances, drunkenness, and one involving people, orgies. And then one general statement. Look at verse 21. And things like these, meaning this is not a comprehensive list, but can you feel where his focus was? Protecting the unity of God's people. The list is startling. Here's why. Because it places socially acceptable sins, envy, and divisions next to sins most Christians find shocking orgies. And all of them are classified with this warning in verse 21. Look at it. I warned you, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Give me five more minutes. In contrast to the works of the flesh, which are conspicuous, there's another list. And this is how we determine between true spirituality and religion. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love for God and love for others. Serve a person for their good, not ours, motivated by love for God. This, by the way, is from the Holy Spirit. Listen to Romans 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The problem with the the Corinthians and their spiritual giftedness, matter of fact, this is what Paul says about that church. They came behind in no gift. They had all the gifts, and he even calls them "spiritual" in chapter one, but later on has to say, "But I could not speak to you as unto spiritual people, but as unto carnal, as infants in Christ." and part of that was their abuse of the spiritual gifts. So First Corinthians 12, he even gives you a, a list of the gifts, and in verse 14, he expounds on the two that are the most problematic. And then most of you know this: In the middle of this whole treatment on gifts is what? First Corinthians? 13, the chapter of love. And it's all related. That's not about primarily loving relationships like marriage or families. It is primarily about how we interact with one another in this gathering. First Corinthians 13. The next word is joy a settled and content state of mind in who God is. Joy in God. Not just in his blessings, or that life is working out well for us. This too is from the Holy Spirit. Listen to Romans 14, 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It is possible. To be zealous about truth and wage battle for what is right. And at the same time, because of the Holy Spirit, be joyful. With a contented joyfulness in who God is. The next word, peace. Resting in the sovereignty and control of God. This is the opposite of just apathy or indifferent cynicism or attempts to control others, Isaiah 26, 3-4, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This also is from the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen to 19 for the kingdom of God is peace in the Holy Spirit. Guard that. Patience, the next word, the next fruit. Actually, it's all one fruit. You can't just say, well, I have patience, you know, but I'm not really good at loving people. Um, You you can't separate. It's, It's the fruit singular of the spirit. Well, maybe it's like an orange and I can just pull that wedge out because I'm not good at that one. You can't know it's the fruit of the spirit. Patience, enduring trouble without criticalness, despair or bitterness. It should be displayed to brothers and sisters and friends and enemies. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 12 to 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. We're going to have to do that. Not just this month and next month. We're going to have to do this for years. We're going to have to do this until we see Jesus Christ face to face. We're going to have to put up with each other. By God's Holy Spirit, we can do that. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, 1-3, he uses the term walk again. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. He says it again. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Capital S. In the bond of peace, kindness. Let me just read to you what Shriner says. Believers imitate God and Christ whenever they are generous to others, but especially in extending benevolence to those who are not loving in return. Goodness, integrity, moral beauty, faithfulness, loyalty, reliability, dependability, gentleness. What a forgotten fruit of the spirit. Humility and self-forgetfulness. I love how Paul had to entreat the Corinthian church. He says, I, Paul, 2 Corinthians 10.1, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Self-control. The opposite of impulsive, impulsive, riotous living that is without discipline. So what is true spirituality? Walking by the Spirit. And not gratifying the desires of the flesh. How do you recognize this person? We used to sing this with the children down in the basement. And I would pull out my guitar and uh, if you want to, it's called the fruit of the spirit. If you want to be a watermelon, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the spirit. Because the fruits are love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you want to be a coconut. Kids love this song, by the way. You know, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. You know in verse 23 what it says about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Against such things there is no law. The Spirit will never lead believers against the true intent of the law. And what is that true intent? It is fulfilled in one word, Galatians 5.14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me first ask this. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Paul ends the section where he began. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then look down at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, what a beautiful phrase, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What has God done? Verse 24, we belong to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. I am fully accepted by him. What must we do? Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, and keep in step with the Spirit. So, how are we walking? How am I walking through this transition as a church? I've tripped up, I've stumbled. Well, the Holy Spirit prompts to get back in step with Him. He prompts, and He's patient, and He's long suffering. And you'll know that I'm walking in the Spirit because I will be evidencing the singular fruit that has many manifestations. I'm going to invite our music team forward. While they get set up, I'd like to take a minute or two for us to just have some silent reflection on these truths. and invite you to know the sweetness of living a lifestyle of repentance and faith, turning and believing. And where I, Steve Hafler, have been out of step, I need to ask God's forgiveness and and in simple faith believe that God is in control of everything and I can show that I am in step with the Spirit by this fruit.